It's good to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible, please open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 21 as we continue our series in 1 Samuel. Uh, we had a, a little bit of a, a break last Lord's Day where Pastor Andrew took us to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm very thankful for that exposition. Uh, so it's been a couple of Lord's Days, but we're returning back to 1 Samuel. Looking at chapter 21, if you do not have a Bible, there should be some Bibles around you, hopefully underneath the chair in front of you. We refer to that as our Pew Bible, and you can find this passage on page 228 of the Pew Bible. Page 228. Before we read the passage this morning, just want to remind us just a bit of where we uh, find ourselves in this unfolding of the book of Samuel. In the previous chapter, we, well, the previous two chapters, we have watched David, the Lord's anointed, um, really be tracked down by King Saul, who is currently reigning in Israel. And he has threatened David's life on multiple occasions. The, the, Israel's own king doing this, uh, bringing David to the brink of desperation. And we have seen how David has appealed to his friend, the king's son, the prince, Jonathan, uh, for protection, and Jonathan not able, even himself, to stay his father's wrath. And so David takes refuge with Samuel and his prophets and Ramah, if you remember that unfolding. But Saul finds him even there. The Lord provides and protects. And then... Um, David, in chapter 20, has this plan or scheme with Jonathan once again in hopes that Saul would be appeased and Saul would allow him to come back. And they have their plan laid out where, uh, based off of how Saul responds during a certain feast, would determine whether or not David could be welcomed back or does he actually need to flee and get out of here. And clearly, by Saul, Saul's response even to his own son, horrible words spoken and a spear thrown at his own son's head, it was clear that David needs to go. And so with uh, little time, swiftly takes flight with really little more than a shirt on his back as we see in our chapter uh, 21 this morning. And so now please follow along as I read from God's word. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no, pre no bread there but the bread of the presence, 
which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that, give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish, so this is in the Philistine area, said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him here to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Hear the word of the Lord. Interesting 15 verses before us this morning, uh, two episodes uh, in which we get to see first David and Nob interacting with Ahimelech, the priest there, and then David fleeing to Gath, to basically the enemy's camp. Um, This is David on the run, David desperate to um, flee from from, from Saul's hand, and we watch this story unfold before us and seek the Lord's help in, in gleaning what, what he would have for us here in his word this morning. So first, we see the visit to the city of the priests, Nob, which is new information to us as the readers of 1 Samuel at this point. So first, you have David ap- appealing to the king's son, So you've got the office of kingship that David goes to. And then as the story unfolds, he then goes to Samuel and he goes to the prophets for his safety. And now David turns to the third institution uh, given to the people of Israel, the priests. Now, we can only piece together these details from the book of Samuel. But if you remember all the way back, I believe it's chapter 4, Uh, Eli and his wicked sons were the ones who were priests over the land, and the ark was, was taken by the Philistines, and what we gather is that where the priests once were, the priests Shiloh, that no longer uh, was a viable place, whether it was destroyed by the Philistines, the, the priestly uh, duties had been moved to Nob. But what we also know from what has transpired is that the Ark of the Covenant never actually came back to Shiloh or Nob. It actually remained in Kiriath-Jerim. We see that in 1 Samuel chapter 7. 
So I just want to make note of this as we're looking at this chapter. You've got the tabernacle with the priest in Nob, the Ark of the Covenant in Kiriath-Jerim, not in the same place. That's going to be important as this story unfolds before us. So they didn't have the Ark, but they still had the showbread, the bread of presence, which is mentioned here. So if you're kind of thinking through this chapter, I was talking to my kids last night as we were reading this passage. Just think, you've got three S's. You've got a supper, David's hungry, the bread situation. You've got a sword, Goliath's sword, and lastly, spittle, spit coming down on his beard. Just breaking up the chapter for you, nice and easy. So first, the bread episode, the part where David is obviously hungry and in need of of food. And so you've got this exchange with Ahimelech. And um, back to the bread just for a moment. Every Sabbath, 12 loaves of bread were piled on a table, the, the bread of presence, two stacks of six. You think about 12, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were placed on the holy place, the north side of the tabernacle. They were, among other things, a quiet witness to what God had provided for his people. So think all the way back to Exodus chapter 16. While the people were in the wilderness, God provided them manna from heaven. When they were in need, God provided. The bread of presence is to be a reminder to the people. The only ones that could eat the bread, the bread of presence were Aaron and his sons, the, the priests. But they were there to remind, to help the people remember how God supplies their needs. And so you have Ahimelech, and we know that there is the bread of the presence also there. So David comes, and it's interesting, the details given to us when he makes his way into Nob to Ahimelech, the priest. Ahimelech comes to him, verse 1, trembling. And again, we're not given all the details, but you can only assume that Saul's posture towards David may have been making its rounds throughout Israel at this point, hearing of these examples of of really Saul trying to take David out. Whatever the case may be, Ahimelech, his, his spidey sense is raised, so to speak, as he's approaching David, and David's not looking the way that he normally would look as the commander of Saul's armies. He would usually have an entourage with him, and this is looking a little different. He may not be looking physically uh, at his best at this point, and so he, he immediately broaches the question. He quizzes him, are you, or why are you alone and no one with you? And so David comes up with, as we will see in this chapter, the first of two deceptions. The first one, he tells him, which was very clear, that he is on this secret mission. That's why this looks a little weird, maybe, to Ahimelech. He is on a mission. He can't really talk about the details of this mission, but he is sent by Saul on this particular mission that has led him to this point, being both hungry and in need of weaponry. So David comes asking for bread uh, uh, off the the cuff, or at the beginning. And so the, we're, we're told the priest was willing to give him this bread, but he imposed uh, requirements. Ahimelech was laying out, okay, if I'm going to do this, this is what needs to kind of be in order. Uh, the men, you and the men with you, must have kept themselves from women. 
And this would have, we could do a deep dive here, I don't think that it's helpful at this point, but really to be dedicated or consecrated for holy war, set apart on mission, would have been the requirements or the preparation for this type of this type of transaction to have occurred. They were in the right um, position. They had prepared themselves for this, this holy task. David assured him that they had met these requirements. Now, as we're looking at this first request and it being given to David by Ahimelech, it's really important when we have something in the New Testament to shine light or shed light on what's happening in the old. And we have the Lord Jesus actually referencing this particular episode in Matthew chapter 12. And in Matthew chapter 12, in Jesus's teaching, he actually exonerates David's actions in this episode. So it's really important for us to look at this. So I want us to hear from God's word, Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. This is from the Lord Jesus. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. So Jesus is about to have an exchange. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, so Jesus helps us understand that there were were some men either outside waiting for David or in and around this situation with David. How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law... How on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, he quotes from Isaiah, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath." So Jesus is going to help them understand and us understand how while something may look like it's guilty of breaking God's law, actually being found guiltless in this particular situation. So just spending just a few moments here, I think this this does definitely help us look at what David's doing in this chapter and help us understand. So the law of God made allowances in it, when, apply, when, when uh, what was applied was based off of the principle or heart of the matter. So it proves that those who look guilty are actually guiltless. And so Jesus gives an example, which we can actually be helped by in our, our passage. The priests that work in the tabernacle would be responsible to actually bake this bread, the bread of the presence, on the Sabbath. They would be working, baking, preparing, setting on the Sabbath. The loaves were baked. And so if you just look at it and you read God's law, you could go, okay, well, they profane the Sabbath. They must therefore be guilty. But no, actually, they are found guiltless. 
Jesus then quotes Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So hear this, what Ahimelech could bake on the Sabbath, David could eat. So Jesus meant that the intent of the law was fulfilled by this act of mercy. There's a commentator, Gordon Keddy, explains, or Keddy, the true meaning of the ceremonial law of the showbread, the bread of presence, was expressed in its being given to David as an act of compassion and mercy, providing for a real need. Think again of what the bread of presence represented. There was real need for the people of Israel, and God provided. The law was fulfilled rather than superseded or done away with. So it's really important when we think of mercy, God desires mercy and not sacrifice. This does not mean that mercy is somehow like antinomian, anti-law. Righteousness or obedience is not at odds with mercy. Mercy is not looking at God's law and thinking, oh, we can, we can be loose when it comes to the commands of the Lord. No, we actually see the, the unfolding of what biblical mercy looks like and how it plays out in a practical experience, like one who is, who is hungry. But I also think there's more happening here. As Jesus continues to tell them, um, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, something greater than the temple is here. Both of those statements, I think, also help us understand what's going on here. So there is a type happening with David all throughout his anointing as, uh, or his anointing as the king, the anointed one, the man after God's own heart. And as David approaches, and all that is there is the bread of presence, Ahimelech is, is convinced that he, the one who is able to give, is the one who gives the bread of the presence to a type of the actual presence. So remember, the Ark of the Covenant is not there which represented the presence of God. There was something disjointed here. And you have here the one, the great, 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 great grandfather of the Messiah, the true presence incarnate. And in this moment, you have a type coming before Ahimelech and, and want needing the presence, the bread of presence, and Ahimelech giving the bread of presence to this type of the one anointed one, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Much to chew on there. I pray that the, the Holy Spirit kind of sparks a desire in us to go back to Matthew 12 and dig in a little bit deeper. But I wanted to take us there before we continue to move through um, our story before us in this chapter. Now, where we go next is that we're introduced by the writer of 1 Samuel chapter 21, a detail in verse 7, an, an important note that comes back in just the next chapter, chapter 22. We are introduced to a certain man of the servants of Saul who was there that day. And so if you're just making note, remember Doag the Edomite, because he's going to actually come back and play an unfortunate role in the next chapter. There's this phrase, detained before the Lord, that 
I submit to you, I do not know exactly what that means, but for some reason, he is in this place in Nob, and he is observing what's taking place before Ahimelech and David. And clearly, he is on Saul's side. So this is, this is not good, but we don't get to really hear much until the next chapter. But just make note of Doag. And then David makes his second request. So remember, we've got supper, and then we've got sword. He asked him, do you have any kind of weapons here? And it just so happens that Goliath's sword, the one who David had slayed, that sword is the one that's here. It's wrapped, it's in the back, and so David wants that sword. There is none like that, give it to me. And so with that sword, he makes his way from Nob to Gath. Okay. Now, just a moment here. I introduced that this, this was the first of two forms of deception that we see in this chapter. So he, he tells Ahimelech that he's on this secret mission from King Saul, which that, at face value, is not actually, Saul did not commission him to go and, and do this. So there's that first deception, and then we get to see how he deceives Achish and the people of the Philistines by the way that he acts. But these two deceptions, uh, one, we, we will realize in the coming chapter, one did not work as well in chapter 22, the first one. David seems to be, in this, this form of deception, seems to be looking out for Ahimelech. So just think for a moment, the way that, that David presented all of this information really gives Ahimelech plausible deniability. If he's ever confronted, he's just responding with what information has been given to him. And so if, if David did not tell Ahimelech that he was fleeing from Saul, then Ahimelech could rightly claim that he knew nothing of David's fugitive status when he sought to help him in Nob. So David, in a sense, we can assume, tried to uh, protect Ahimelech. The second form, we will see in just a moment, unpacked all that transpires in Gath. But before we get there, I just want us to ask the question. It's in the Lord's providence where we were in adult Sunday school. Uh, and, and, and asking this question, is, is deception ever okay? Is it black and white for a believer? You may never lie in any situation, in any form. Those are good questions for us to wrestle with. Uh, when you start thinking about being in situations of just war or something to the equivalent where innocent life is at stake, do, does, it, does it get a little bit more blurry on how to navigate those waters? And so this reminds us of other biblical, sample, uh, big, biblical examples that we've looked at in previous weeks, but remember the Hebrew midwives. Exec, ex, exec, I'm sorry, ex, excellent, wow, example of individual citizens who came between an aggressor, the king of Egypt, and a person or body that otherwise would be harmed, the Hebrew baby boys, if you remember, in order to save innocent lives. There was a, a willingness to deceive, to do something that they were told not to do. Another would be Rahab, defied and deceived the authorities in order to save the lives of Hebrew spies, Joshua chapter 2. And we see later in Hebrews chapter 11 and James chapter 2, they were praised by God, or she was praised by God for it. 
Another example, just an illustration, several years ago, uh, Leadership, it's a ministry journal, included a story about a B-17 bombing, a bombing run over a German city during World War II. These details are just amazing. So Nazi anti-aircraft shot uh, shells and hit the gas tanks of the bomber as they're on this mission, but there was no explosion. The morning after the raid, the pilot went down to ask the crew chief for the shell that had not exploded but hit the tank, and he could have it as a, as a souvenir, just because this is just incredible that they would have survived being hit. The crew chief indicated that there were 11 unexploded shells in the gas tank. The shells had been sent to the armorers to be diffused. The, then intelligence had picked them up, and the armorers had found that the shells contained no explosive, explosive charge. They were empty all but one, and contained in the one that had something in it was a rolled-up note written in check. Finally, they found someone who could interpret um, or who could read check, and it translated, this is what the note said, this is all we can do for you now. That's what was in the shell. So there were these Czechs at the time who were compelled to work in Germany in munition plants for Nazi war effort. In those plants, they did not try to blow up the plant or assassinate Hitler. They simply didn't put charges in some of the shells that they produced. So this was a very quiet and unnoticed work, but it worked salvation all the same. So I just want you to start thinking through, are there ever times where deception can be used for good? And I submit to you, if you start to really think, there are moments, there are situations when innocent life is at stake and just war there are ways for us to think through this lens where it makes sense and actually works towards good for things like this to unfold. And then in verse 10, we see David rose and fled that day and went to Achish, the king of Gath. He literally fled from the presence of Saul. Saul's presence must have been felt such a weighty, experience for David at this time, so to speak, that he went to the enemy's camp. And just think for a moment what's happening here. He, he just strapped on Goliath's sword, okay? And he's making his way to Gath. Where was Goliath from? Gath. Think about the people, all, all the, the, the ways in which David has assaulted and defeated the Philistines on so many different occasions, it was clear that the people were attuned to the songs, the chants that were so famous in Israel, so much so that when they caught wind and identified who this man was, the king of the land of Israel, they told Achish, you've got to understand who this man is. And so the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him 
in dances. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And so they tell Achish the king that this man of legend, the one who has slain ten thousands, most of whom are us, King Achish, this is David, this is the man. Now, David in this setting is made aware that his identity is known. We are told that David was much afraid in verse 12. This is the only place in 1st and 2nd Samuel in which we are told that David was afraid of the threats against him. And David did have reason to be very afraid. Uh, his hopes of being this fugitive that could maybe go unnoticed flopped. He was seized by the Philistines, taken into custody. At least that's what we gather in verse 13, in their hands would imply. And then also to note, which we'll get to in just a moment, uh, Psalm 34 and Psalm 56 were both written by David about this particular time. And one of the headers, I think it's in Psalm 56, tells us that this is when the Philistines seized him. So he's in, a, he's, in, he's in a bad spot. And I, I want us to just think about fear for a moment. Fear can make us lose perspective. Fear can make us doubt God's faithfulness. Fear can make us question the value of, of what we're fighting for. Fear can induce stress, bitterness, even at times, fear can induce folly or cowardness. Cowardice. So the two Psalms are, are going to be really helpful in us getting a, a clearer picture of what David's going through in this chapter. So very thankful for Matthew chapter 12, David shedding light on the scene with Ahimelech. And then we have Psalm 34 and Psalm 56 which we will touch on different parts, but I, I want to encourage you this week. Spend time in God's Word reading through those two psalms in particular in light of 1 Samuel chapter 21 because it really does start to bring things to life as you really enter into David's desperation. He is in a bad spot right here. You think about kind of lowest of lows, thinking how how in the world could I be delivered from this particular situation? And then you read those two Psalms and it just brings to life a man who is trusting God. Even in the midst of really difficult circumstances, he is trusting God. So two Psalms that were written by David. Psalm 56, David actually speaks of this fear. When I am afraid... I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. Notice the temptation to fear in this psalm, when I am afraid. In light of these temptations, how does David respond? This psalm lists several different reasons not to be afraid. And, God, and, and David is able to rehearse these reasons, to remind himself of the reasons why he should be not afraid, but actually trusting God in the midst of this terror. 
One striking remark from David in Psalm 56 addresses something that's so important to us, but many times lost on us. The tender nearness of God, even in the midst of the darkest of situations, the tender nearness of God. Consider this imagery that David paints for us in Psalm 56. Listen to what he says. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Now, some may just kind of gloss over that, like, oh, God, God acknowledges that we're hurting. Consider every tear that has ever fallen from your face. The God who holds you in his hands knows it all. For some of us, you may be in that kind of situation where you just feel like you are at your wit's end, dark, loss of hope. This is, the kind of, this is the kind of truth that we need in those times. God has noticed everything. He is not distant, uncaring. He loves us. He, he knows us. We know this because many years after David wrote this psalm, God incarnate, God in the flesh, the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, entered into our space and our time. And we read in the Gospels, Jesus himself wept. He himself endured much anguish. Jesus Christ is the living proof in the flesh and blood that God cares so deeply for all of our pains and all of our tears, all of our problems. So that's Psalm 56, just a little nibble. Psalm 34 David's testimony is a wonderful encouragement. Remember, written about this particular situation. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. So David is testifying to his own experience of God's grace. Whether we or he in the moment could see it or not, David is able to affirm and help us understand the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Brothers and sisters, this radically reorients our understanding of fear, situations that seem too hard or too dangerous. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Okay, we're going to jump back to 56 for a moment. David asks in Psalm 56, what can flesh do to me? If these are the realities, if this is truth, what can flesh actually do to me? He lets us hear in verse 9, the latter part, this I know that God is for me. If that is, if that is true in your life, if God is for you, you really can ask the question, well, then what can flesh do to me? What peace that passes all understanding when you are resting in that reality? What indeed, if God is for him, who can be against him? 
So David was, we are told clearly from our passage in 1 Samuel 21, much afraid in the presence of Achish, the king of Gath. His response to fear was to put his trust in God, whose word he believed. Whose word he believed. God had told Samuel very clearly, this is the one in whom you shall anoint. David was the anointed one. God had spoken these realities over him, and he is clinging to God's word. So then a question that we ask and we see answered very clearly, how does David escape from King Achish? So, verse 13, he changed his behavior before them, pretended to be insane, made marks on the doors of the gate, and spittle ran, ran down his beard. And I think this is really hilarious. If you're just kind of slowing down and like really soaking in what's going on in this scene, you've got this mem uh, memorable line from the king. I don't know what was going on in Gath, but he basically says, do you think that I'm running low on men who are out of their minds? I don't need any more of this. And it actually leads to David being able to get out of there, escape from the people of Gath. Just amazing. And this is kind of just an aside, just thinking about the way that the Lord delivers. Maybe some of us can testify that he is working in ways that are way outside of the box that we think that he normally should work within. There was a, an opportunity where David was able to put on this show, this form of deception, where he was an innocent life, and it led to him being able to get out, to escape. And when he's reflecting in Psalm 34, he's giving all the glory to God for this deliverance. This is how he begins that psalm. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I was thinking about this as I was reflecting on these two psalms and what happens in this chapter and wrestling with deception and where you draw the lines or discern when it's okay and when it's not. And what's really interesting, just if you're taking notes, in Psalm 34, David pens these words inspired by the Spirit. Verse 13, he is, he is telling us all, those who are part of the household of faith, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. And so I, as I'm working through this, I can only believe that David is telling us what God requires and what God wants for us to not speak deceitful things, to not lie. We hear that in our, in our um, grace verse this month. So there is a different category of what's going on here. And I think it's, it's good for us to wrestle and, and discern where this lands, this form of deception happening through 1 Samuel chapter 21, going back and reading 1 Samuel chapter 19 and seeing how 
there was deception because Saul was after David. Those examples as well, and as we're putting this all together, we're starting to see that there's a, there's a line being drawn here. The deceitful speech that we see in Psalm 34 is a different category than how David acts in 1 Samuel chapter 21. I think it's good for us to think through these things. I want to, you to hear again from Psalm 56 verse 9, David saying, This I know that God is for me. David is able to say with a clear conscience, boldly before all who could hear him, this I know that God is for me. And this morning, I think that really raises a million dollar question that we all need to ask, can you say that? Can you say this I know God is for me? And then the follow-up, how do you know that that's actually true? You might say yes or no, but what are you staking that on? So as we think about that question, how do you know, is God for me? First, we have to be reminded of what Satan is continually and has always been about. Satan is very insistent about throwing that wrench in our confidence in knowing if God is for us. He has been insistent on this question from the very beginning. So let's go just for a moment all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the Garden of Eden. The first recorded words are an assault on God's gracious character. This is what we read in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Is God really for you? You will find this same assault on God's gracious character in so many various forms and guises throughout all of your Christian life. You need to have a biblical answer to these questions. How do you know that God is really for you? Where should you look for the proof that God is really for you? There really is only one answer to that question. But what I want to remind us of this morning is that we look for other ways to answer that question. Many of us look to our circumstances and ask, can the proof be found in our circumstances? So, Many look to their health, wealth, marriage, vocation, friendships to see whether or not they can discern, is there confirmation in these circumstances that would let me know that God really is for me? And you need to hear this morning that the answer is not found in your circumstances. This is where the heresy of the health wealth and prosperity gospel rears its ugly head because people look at their circumstances 
And if it's going really well, that's proof in the pudding that God is really for me. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. That is not where the proof lies. I hope you know where I'm going. And it's so good to say again and again, it is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one provision that God has made for us where his graciousness is actually seen in its true sense. Because what we deserve is eternal damnation. What we receive is eternal life through Christ and Christ alone. Where we stand before God full of guilt and the penalty of our sin being death, what Christ has made available to sinners, to rebels, is the forgiveness of our sins, the gift of eternal life, the hope of communion with God forever. Hear from the Apostle Paul in a passage that I think answers this question, what then shall we say to these things? Romans 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He's asking the question. This is the answer. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you are hearing the assault of Satan this morning, accusing you of your guilt, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake. We are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is only one way to be sure that God is for us. Let us pray. Father, may we this morning taste and see that the Lord is good. You tell us in Psalm 34, Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Father, help us this morning to run to you as our refuge and strength. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Father, we thank you for your glorious truths of who you are and how you care for your own. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. 
Father, may we all join David in saying, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, and we pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen.